Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. We're doing a six-week sermon series on generosity that we've called Grace, Gratitude, and Generosity. And uh, this morning, we're going to go up and we're going to go out to try to get at it as we go uh, to the very end, this picture we have there uh, that we get in the book of Revelation. And uh, so this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. The passage we're going to look at is printed there in your bulletin, and we're going to be looking at the whole chapter Verses 1 through 14. And so let me read it for us. The Apostle John, writing this, says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for uh, this passage and the chance now for us to come and uh, hear you speak to us. And uh, I simply ask that you would give us ears to hear for our good and for your glory and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the middle of the 19th century, 
a uh, well-known Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers preached a sermon on one verse of scripture, a pretty famous verse from 1 John 2, 15, a, a verse where the Apostle John talks to us about not loving the world and the things in the world. And in this sermon that Chalmers entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, he starts it off this way. These are his opening lines. He says, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it, or by setting forth another object, even God is more worthy of its attachment, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. And now there are a lot of shall be prevailed upons and so as that's in, in that. So it's a little hard to understand maybe the first time you read it. But what he's saying essentially is there are two ways you can try to fight the love of the world and the love of the things of the world in your heart. You can, you can see or be shown their vanity, their emptiness, that they're not going to give you what you truly want in the long run, that they're not worthy of your affection and so you shouldn't go after them, or you can see or be shown something better, something more beautiful, something that is worthy of your affection, something that can give you what your heart truly wants. And what Thomas Chalmers goes on to argue in this sermon based on the word of God and based on the way that God has made us to work is it's this second approach that's the effective one. That what can really move your heart and my heart away from the love of the world and the things in it, things like our success, our achievement, our status, our comfort, and our money, isn't us just being told, hey, they're not that great. But it's us seeing something that is. And that's what this sermon is about today. That's why we're looking at a passage like this in a series on generosity, because this passage isn't about money. It's not about generosity directly. The word wealth is mentioned in the middle of verse 12, but that's not what it's about. But what it's about is greatness. It's about something so great, so grand, and so beautiful that one commentator I read at the beginning of his section on this said he felt like even to comment on it was to make it potentially lose some of its splendor. Because here in this passage, we get a look into the throne room of heaven. And we get to see the glory of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he's done for us, the one who is worthy of all our life, of all our love, of all our everything. And so this morning, as we continue this series on generosity, we're going to lean into the phrase that the best defense is a good offense. We're going to go after our hearts with glory as we look together at the glory of Jesus Christ and think about how it can make you and I a more generous people. And since I'm a little rusty and just getting back into the swing of things, no, no creative outline at all for you this morning, just very simple game plan. Let's just walk through this passage and look at those two things. Let's look at the glory we see here and then let's think about how that glory can make us generous. So seeing the glory and then how the glory makes us generous. So first seeing the glory, let's start by just looking at the glory. John shows us in this scene. And we begin to see it by first seeing that there's a problem that sets it all up. There's a problem that sets it all up. Verse one, he says, then I saw in the right hand of him 
who is seated on the throne in a, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And scholars believe the scroll here with the writing on both sides represents the eternal plan of God. It represents his plan for judgment and redemption, his plans to end the pain and suffering of his people, to put an end to sin and death and all that once and for all. And in addition, his plans to bring about his good purposes for his people forever and finally. And so it's a big deal to put it lightly, but the problem is no one can open it. There's no one on heaven or on the earth or under the earth who's found worthy enough to be able to come and take the scroll from God the Father who's here sitting on the throne, who can open it and then begin to make all these plans happen, which is devastating. And so appropriately, as as John, the narrator here, takes this in, he begins to weep. He begins to weep greatly. He begins to weep loudly as verse Four says. So the scene sets up for us a very dramatic moment. It sets up this big problem we're here left waiting in. I've still been on my World War II grind, if anybody's been wondering about that. But now I'm, I'm heavy into Apple TV's new show, Masters of the Air, which is about the uh, Air Force bombers and the role they played in the war. And it's a new show. So they're releasing one uh, episode at a time on Fridays. And I'm not going to give anything away if you haven't seen it, uh, at least not anything that's going to mean anything to you. I'll keep it vague. But a few episodes ago, uh, one of the main characters didn't come back from a mission. And it was a big shock. You would think this is one of the characters that's going to make it with you through the whole show. And so I kept waiting for them to show him, at least to show what happened to him if he really did go down, but they never did. And then the episode ended, and of course, there wasn't a new one because it's only coming out one at a time for me to compulsively, you know, click on for it to start even before the 10-second shot clock, you know, runs out where it would start on its own anyway. But so I had to wait, something you used to always have to do with a TV show. But the writers of the show did such a great job of creating this very dramatic moment of, of getting you in it, of keeping you in it, of making you feel it. And that's what's happening here in this scene in heaven. As God the Father's holding this scroll, as the angel cries with a loud voice, is anyone worthy to open it? As John weeps, it's such a dramatic moment. Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone who can do this for us? It's a moment in heaven that dramatizes the way you and I so often feel here on earth. Times when we ask these kinds of questions. Is there anyone who has a plan? Is there anyone who can do something about all the the junk in my life? Can anyone put an end to all the pain and suffering that's coming at me? Is anyone able to unlock the key for me to have the life and the joy and the peace I so badly want? And and maybe, maybe you're here today. Maybe you're coming in with something that has you feeling this way. Maybe even something that has you weeping greatly, loudly, like John. We've certainly had a lot of tears in our house 
over the past couple of weeks. But it's a moment that dramatizes our desperation, our longing for a hero, for someone who is worthy, for someone who can do it, for someone who does have a plan, who will put an end to all the pain and suffering, who can bring the life and joy and peace we so badly want to come into our hearts. And so there's a a problem that sets it all up. But then we see into this great problem comes a solution. Into the depressing silence brought about by the angel's question comes an answer. Into all the unworthiness of everyone else comes the one who is worthy. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who's worthy. And he's the line of the tribe of Judah, connecting him back to Jacob's blessing that he gave his son Judah in Genesis 49, his prophecy that one would come from his line who would rule over all peoples and nations. And he's the root of David, tying him to King David and God's promise to raise up for him an ancestor who would sit on his throne forever. And he's conquered so he can do it. He can open the scroll. He can make all these things happen. But then what really causes the glory to explode is what happens next. Because one of the elders here introduces this person, this worthy one, to John. He says, don't weep. Behold, there is someone who can do it. And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. And he's conquered. And what you expect to happen next is like what happens in most of our movies and stories about great heroes. There's a buildup. There's a a big problem, and then here they come. They finally show up. They arrive on the scene, and you see the hero at the peak of his or her powers, and they're unstoppable. No one can touch them. They're, They're not even able to be defeated. Pick your favorite hero, and you can imagine a scene like this. But what actually happens here is something so much different than that. Because when this hero now steps foot on the scene and John gets to look at him himself, instead of seeing a conquering lion, verse 6 says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he's a conquering lion, but now he's a lamb who's been slain. And what this brings us into is, is what it is that makes him worthy to be able to take the scroll, to be able to open it, to be able to to execute these plans that God has for us. And it is that he's conquered. It is that he's won, but it's that he's conquered by being slain. It's that he's won by losing. And this is what the first song of praise here makes abundantly clear. In verse eight, we read that when he had taken the scroll, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. So you're worthy, but why? For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see that? What made him worthy, what makes him worthy is that he was slain. He's worthy because of what he's done in giving his life for us to ransom us for God, 
to make us a kingdom and priests to God, to make us rule and reign on the earth. Us, you and me who are not at all worthy on our own, you and me who sin and mess up all the time, you and me who don't trust God and submit to his will for our lives, you and me who most of the time do whatever we can to never be in a position where we have to lose and give up our own life for the good of others. Jesus Christ did this for us. He did this for you. He did this for me. He gave up all his power and position, all his wealth and privilege in heaven to come down as a vulnerable lamb to be slain for us so that he could rise up into heaven and be the great hero we need so he could be the one who is worthy to open the scroll and to give us an internal inheritance from God that's beyond our wildest dreams. And then to try to soak in the rest of the glory here, we we finally need to see the reception he receives. The reception he receives after he's done all this. What happens in heaven when when Jesus comes forward as the lion and the lamb, when he does take the scroll from God the Father? Well, when the Apostle Paul is talking about Jesus condescending and becoming like a lamb for us, here's what he says about him. And this is what we read in our call to worship today. He says about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then listen to this. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul describes there is exactly what we see going on in this scene. We just saw the first song of praise erupt from the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The 24 elders that's probably representative of the 12 tribes of Israel and then the 12 apostles The four living creatures are are some sort of special angelic beings, but they explode in praise. And then throughout the rest of the passage, you see a buildup that's happening. So the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures then expands to thousands and thousands, millions of angels getting in on it. Verse 11, after this first song, John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So they get in on it, but that's not it. Lastly, it goes to all of creation. Verse 12, 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Just going through this, I do feel what uh, that commentator I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon said. Like, what can I even say about this? Envisioning this happening Trying to envision me uh, being there, participating in this, singing these songs uh, with my own voice. And maybe there is more I could say about it. It's certainly worth more of our time thinking about it, uh, maybe trying to reflect on it, meditate on it even more today and this week. 
But for the rest of our time now, let's shift to generosity. What in the world does all this have to do with us and our generosity? How, How can us seeing this glory here in this scene make us more generous? Well, one of the more well-known self-improvement books that's out there is uh, the book by Stephen Covey, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm sure many of you have have heard of this or maybe even read it. And and there's a lot of wisdom in the book, but I think there's especially a lot of wisdom in the second habit that Stephen Covey talks about. And it's this, his second habit is to begin with the end in mind, to begin with the end in mind. And this is how he describes it in the book. He says, To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you better understand where you are now and so that the steps you take are always in the right direction. How different our lives are when we really know what is deeply important to us. And keeping that picture in mind, we manage ourselves each day to be and to do what really matters most. If the ladder is not leaning against the right wall, every step we take just gets us to the wrong place faster. We may be very busy, we may be very efficient, but we will also be truly effective only when we begin with the end in mind. And listen, when I, when I think about my own generosity and, and when I think about the times and seasons when I'm the least generous, and I'm talking here about more than just money, I think for me, for me it probably hits actually more acutely when I think about my time and my energy and my focus, I probably prize those things even more than I do money. Sometimes I can think I'm actually pretty good on generosity if I'm only thinking financially, which is, is actually not true at all, but I can, I can think that way sometimes. But then when I bring these other things in and count them as being generous, I can see how stingy and frugal my heart really is so much of the time. But when I'm living like this, most of the time I realize it's because I've got a really small end in mind. I've got an end that's all about me, an end that's about my ability to achieve and accomplish what I want with my life, an end that's about me working hard on and investing in the things I want to so that I'll have the kind of, you know, happy and comfortable life I want to have. But what gets me out of that and what opens me up to be more generous in all these different ways is, is when I go up into reality, into uh, the true end of things. When I go into this end that we're talking about, one that doesn't have me at the center, but one that has Jesus at the center, an end that's about him, an end that's about his glory. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it gets me out of that when I can live in light of that and even live into that now, because this isn't only, hey, this is where you're going one day, so you might as well get on board now. It is where we're going perfectly and fully one day, but it's also what Jesus brings us into now, today, to be captured by him more than anything else, who he is, what he's done for us to find our truest and deepest sense of of happiness and joy in him. And see, that's that's how glory makes us generous, because we don't worship Jesus because it works. We don't give to Jesus because it works. Most of the time, if if we're not too numbed out to feel it, life down here doesn't seem to be working very well. I mean, I've probably felt as close to Jesus as I've ever felt in the past year. But if I was measuring whether or not uh, it was working, at least by a lot of outward measures right now, I would have to say, no, it's not working at all. And and giving our lives to Jesus is hard. It usually doesn't feel like it works either. 
I love what one of uh, Matt Guzzi and Mark Upton's old worship leaders used to say. They, they tell us about this a lot. Would, when they would be taking up the offering in a service, would say to the congregation, uh, to be clear, if you give, you will have less money. <laughs> and here's the point. We don't worship Jesus and we don't give him everything because it works. But we do it because he's worth it. Because he is the better affection. Going back to Thomas Chalmers and that old sermon, because he and his kingdom is like the treasure in the field. Jesus talks about in Matthew 13 when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. And living like this is what it looks like for you and me to be a kingdom, to be priests to our God. It's what it looks like for us to reign on the earth now as Jesus' people. It looks like you and me following him in this downward way to glory, giving up our power, position, and privilege, our time, talents, and treasure, because how can there be anything better? How can there be anything? How can there be anyone more worthy? And so the invitation for this series is to practically consider how God might be calling you to participate in this campaign we're doing right now at Hope. But it's also, and it's ultimately so much more than that. Primarily, it's an invitation to consider how you might give all of your life and all of yourself to the one who's worthy. Because the angels are right when they sing in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, one who is worthy, uh, would you give us the ability to see your worthiness in a clearer way this morning? Would you help us to recognize this is the end this is the destination that we're all heading to. And we want to live in light of that now. I know it's, it's so hard to do that. I know it is for me, but I really want it. And I want it for us as a church. And so would you help us uh, to see it, to taste it, to know it today, and then just go do, go live and do what comes natural. We pray in your name. Amen.